KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. A case of the India COVID variant is discovered in San Diego. As the public were a little in the dark on exactly how this one case uh, may have contacted others. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A glimpse into what makes vaccine skeptics change their minds. They were motivated by things that they want to be able to do, like travel or go to sporting events and safely seeing friends and family. San Diego resettlement agencies get ready to accept new refugees. And a conversation about education through the pandemic with one of San Diego's Teachers of the Year. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. The first case of the COVID virus variant that has led to a major outbreak in India has been detected in San Diego. San Diego Public Health Director Dr. Wilma Wooten says a case of the B1617 variant was found in a woman who returned to San Diego from India in March. Because of the lag time between a positive test and viral sequencing, the variant was not detected until last week. Dr. Wooten also told members of the San Diego County Board of Supervisors that despite continued lower rates of COVID transmission in San Diego and across California, the state-ordered COVID-19 emergency status is expected to continue through the end of the year. And joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune health reporter Paul Sesson. And Paul, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Did we learn any of the details about how the India variant may have spread in San Diego? We are a little in the dark on that. We know that this uh, this person uh, traveled to India, as you said, and, and returned. Uh, I, I asked yesterday for more information on who she was in contact with after she returned and, and specifically how many people she was in contact with. That's, as we've learned, the kind of the critical information. The county said that you know, we did our normal contact tracing process with this person, but we are not disclosing how many close contacts she had. So we're a little, as the public, we're a little in the dark on exactly how this one case uh, may have contacted others. Did the woman who had the variant display symptoms? We know that uh, she was hospitalized. Uh, we don't know for how long. We don't know if she is still hospitalized. Uh, so, you know, this is this is a, a possibility that this person uh, could have initially uh, come up uh, after being tested for another reason. As you said, it takes a few weeks for them to do the, the viral sequencing uh, genetic analysis. It's necessary to tell whether a one variant or another is involved. Do doctors think this variant is more easily spread or more dangerous? They suspect that it may be more easily spread. 
they suspect that it also may have some resistance to the antibodies that are generated by the various vaccines that are uh, now in use all over the world. Uh, what, from what I could tell, the studies are still too small and uh, not not quite real world enough to really say anything conclusive, uh, but they have noted that several of the uh, subtypes of this variant do carry mutations that, that give those kind of concerns in other variants like, like the one from South Africa and the one from Brazil. Now, Dr. Wooten also talked about other COVID variants being found in San Diego. Can you give us an overview of what she had to say about that? Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, the, the B117 variant first spotted in the UK uh, remains by far the most prevalent in San Diego and across the nation. Uh, the CDC estimates that about 60% of uh, the virus that's currently circulating is 117. We, we've also, uh, you know, we've got two different California variants that, that have uh, that have mutated and, and spread in California. I think that's the second most prevalent uh, type that, that's out there right now. Uh, and then uh, Dr. Wooten mentioned uh, yesterday that last week they also picked up a case uh, of what's been known as the New York variant. Uh, it, it's uh, most prevalent in New York and it, it is uh, kind of gradually spread. Um, and then the, there's a P1 variant out of Brazil. I think she said we're up to about 70 cases. Uh, so, so that variant has grown somewhat, uh, but still is uh, dwarfed by 117. And you said that the current COVID vaccines have been found pretty much effective against these variants. Is that right? That's right. Um, the New York variant, it seems like there's some some pretty good uh, information to indicate that it is uh, well covered by the, the vaccines that are in use in America. And 117 appears also to be well covered. You know, it's a little less clear uh, with, uh, with 1617 out of India. Uh, again, that's uh, there hasn't been quite as much research done yet, so so it's a little foggy there. But they they suspect that that they get some reaction to the vaccine. So, despite the threat posed by the variants, are COVID cases still going down in San Diego? Uh, you know, we we see uh, kind of a steady state. I'd say you know we've seen some some tip down around the 150, 130 case per day uh, rate coming in. And then uh, a little a little uh, uptick uh, up toward closer to 200 cases per day, but, but I think we've been under 200 cases per day for for quite a while now. Uh, you know, it's sure a heck of a lot better than it was when we were consistently over a thousand cases per day. And there there was a period uh, in late December and early January uh, where we were over. 3,000 cases per day. And is that the same situation across the state? Uh, are we seeing the numbers consistently kind of fall? Yeah, we really are. Uh, in most places, uh, we, we've seen this uh, relatively steep fall off after after the big surge in January. You know, there's still virus out there and cases are coming in every day. People are getting hospitalized every day. Uh, a smaller number, but still a number of people are dying every day. It's not showing any signs of, of jumping up like, like they thought it might. Now, Dr. Wooten said that she's been informed by the state that even though California's COVID statistics continue to improve, the COVID-19 emergency status will probably last through the year. What does that mean? 
Yeah, that's a good point, right? I mean, uh, the the governor said a few weeks back that he intends, if if hospitalization rates uh, continue to head down or or remain steady, he intends to remove the current uh, tiered blueprint blueprint reopening system uh, by June fifteenth, and that would allow businesses to widely reopen, organizations to widely reopen, pretty much at full capacity. You know, that's really what I think most of the public cares about is being able to get back to a more um, regular pattern of living, you know, but all of this, all of these um, mandates that the governor have has created uh, throughout the pandemic have been enabled by the fact that he's uh, called an emergency uh, declaration. And, um, you know, I've looked at the state code and it does allow him to keep that emergency status going until he feels like it's uh, time to to cancel it. it. It appears that some of this has to do with federal funding that flows to places that are technically in emergencies. Uh, and Dr. Wooten kind of hinted at that yesterday in terms of uh, the emergency being necessary, I think she said, to, to uh, support response efforts, including vaccination activity. Okay, then I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune health reporter Paul Sisson. Paul, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Public health experts are keeping a close eye on data that shows the pace of COVID-19 vaccinations slowing down. The Washington Post reports that half of all eligible adults have yet to receive a first shot. And yet a growing group of vaccine skeptics appear to be changing their minds and getting the shot. Dr. Brian Kastrugi is the chief executive officer of the D. Beaumont Foundation. He spoke with California Report host Lily Jamali. Here's that interview. You have been conducting focus groups on this issue, and from what you can tell, why are some of these one-time skeptics coming around to the idea of getting the COVID-19 vaccine? Well, I think they're starting to, to see other people taking it, and I think that's what was really important to so many. You know, their decision to get vaccinated came after just their perceived risk of getting COVID-19 outweighed their concerns about the safety of the vaccines. And they were motivated by things that they want to be able to do, like travel or go to sporting events and safely seeing friends and family. Uh, The most influential source of information about COVID-19 vaccines was a doctor, a pharmacist, or other medical professional who they knew and trusted. Uh, And I think they just became more comfortable after seeing the people that they know get vaccinated without any major complications. And of course, health officials at the federal, state and local level are pretty uniformly working to try to convince people about the safety of the vaccine and about why it's so important to get it. What can they be saying and doing to help convince those who are still skeptical? Safety and speed are concerns that that a lot of folks have. And we have to keep telling people that no corners were cut bureaucracy and red tape were cut to expedite the safe development of these vaccines. And that the technology behind the vaccines was built on decades of trusted medical research. So while it seems that these have come to market very quickly, safety wasn't compromised. We need to make sure that uh, people are always feeling that they have the freedom to make an informed personal decision. And lastly, but probably most important, we need to be non-judgmental. We don't need debate. 
we need dialogue and discussion. And many conservatives are tired of being shamed and blamed and just want to have candid, open conversations about the vaccines that are non-judgmental. They want to hear the science and the facts, and then they just want to make their own informed decision. Yeah, you can't really have a dialogue with someone if they feel that you are judging them. Um, I think the reality is that we are not going to convince everyone to get vaccinated, but based on the trends that you are seeing, are you confident that we can at least change the minds of some of the people who are squarely on the fence right now? Between March and April, we saw a 20% increase in likelihood of vaccination among Republicans. And so that gives me hope. But I think the reality lies somewhere in the middle. I think people are still making a decision about whether they want to get the vaccine. And we need to keep consistent, truthful messaging about the vaccine and what it means to get vaccinated. But I think if you look at you know India, we should take that as a warning. And we should not be so arrogant to believe that that could not happen here in the U.S. And that right now there's a race between getting vaccinated or finding more variants. All right, Dr. Brian Castrucci of the De Beaumont Foundation. Thank you. Thanks, Lily. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. President Biden announced his administration would raise the nation's refugee cap to 62,500 individuals. The decision comes after the president faced sharp criticism for failing to lift the previous cap set by the Trump administration of only 15,000, a restriction Biden now characterizes as historically low. The change in course means resettlement organizations will need to pull resources together to help people create a life here in the U.S. Joining me to discuss efforts to help refugees resettle locally is Michael Hopkins, CEO of Jewish Family Services. Michael, welcome. Uh, Thank you. It's good to be here. So first, what's your reaction to Biden lifting the refugee cap? Well, obviously, we we applaud the Biden-Harris decision to lift the cap. Um, Frankly, we were surprised um, that he wanted to continue it at 15,000. Uh, and so um, happy that um, he changed his position. Um, but the new position is actually much more aligned with um, what he campaigned on. So it took a while to get there, and uh, but we're there. How does your organization help refugees start their lives here in the U.S.? So I'm, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but I, I, it is important to note that uh, we've been doing this work um, for over 100 years. As a matter of fact, Jewish Family Service here was founded uh, by a group of women who went down to the border uh, because in 1918, Jews were stuck at the border. Um, so 
helping the stranger, welcoming the stranger, working with refugees um, has been part of our organization's history for, for more than a century. Um, but over the last probably 40 plus years, we've been very involved working with um, HIAS, a Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, our national partner, in helping refugees um, settle here in San Diego. So we're one of four agencies that do that work locally. Um, and we, everything from, you know, uh, refugees different from asylum seekers, refugees um, almost always um, arrive via plane. Um, they come in, you know, through the State Department. Um, they're vetted overseas. And then literally from the moment that they arrive um, at the airport, uh, we help them settle and uh, help them on their path to citizenship. What portion of this higher refugee cap do you think will end up in the larger San Diego area? So that is a good question. I, I don't think anyone really knows. You know, uh, we have the numbers from the past year. Um, so, for example, um, uh, you know, like even in uh, like in 2016, um, San Diego had about 4,000 um, uh, refugees come to San Diego. Uh, this past this current year, we're at 341. I mean, it's really uh, so much smaller than what it's been. Um, now the 4,000, that the cap was was higher than 62.5, um, and most believe that we won't even hit 62.5 in the remainder of this fiscal year. Um, so it probably means uh, a couple thousand for San Diego at some point. I mean, that, that would be my guess. So exactly what kinds of resources do you offer to help someone or a family start their lives here in San Diego? So it's really pretty, uh, um, I mean, the, the first thing that happens is, uh, is a health screening and we, we make sure that, you know, that folks uh, come here um, just medically are, are good to go. Um, so the services include everything from uh, English, uh, learning English to making sure that, that you know, that they um, take advantage of the classes that are available here in San Diego, uh, to employment work, to setting up their home to um, dealing with all of the issues that you can imagine that um, one needs to be taken care of. Um, and uh, these individuals are eligible for benefits. So we also need to make sure that any kind of public benefit that is available, that, that we, we make sure that they take advantage of that. So um, our staff will work one-on-one -on -one with a family and work with individuals and, and, and really get them established here. And can you talk about some of the circumstances people have had to flee from to come to the United States? So that varies, um, and it varies based on what country they've come from. So in the past, um, you know, individuals have come from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. They've come from Miramar. Um, they've come from, um, obviously, before the Trump administration, they came from uh, many countries in the Middle East. So it varied. But um, I mean, the one common denominator with anyone who um, is being resettled, anyone who is part of the refugee program, is um, they are no longer in the country where they were originally living. You know, um, almost always they were. Um, um, they come here via um, having spent a fair amount of time in a refugee camp, and so um, they left wherever they were uh, because of a direct threat to their safety and security. And so all of them um, have some level of trauma. All of them have had some experience. You know, that has um, allowed them to get this far. Um, and I would say that, you know, the program that we're part of, which is also part of the United Nations, you know, the, the individuals that often have um, the most needs come to the United States. And, and so, uh, so these are folks that, that do need, um, I would tell you, say the loving kindness of um, our staff and our volunteers. One big part of resettling is navigating the immigration system. Uh, what has that process been like? Right. So individuals who are, are part of uh, who come here uh, as refugees, um, as opposed to asylum seekers, um, have a clear path to citizenship. 
And uh, after five years, they're eligible to become a citizen. And um, during that period, um, we work with them to make sure that all the paperwork is completed. We also make sure that they are prepared for the citizenship test. Uh, we offer those types of classes here at Jewish Family Service. And so you know, their, um, their path is much more defined um, and they come here um, already um, you know, in line to be a citizen. Um, folks that come as asylum seekers have a really different process in terms of um, that there's actually a whole, you know, a whole process of a, a hearing and to determine whether or not they're actually eligible to be successful in asylum. So that's a really different uh, piece of legal work than, uh, than um, folks that come as part of the resettlement program. So right now, what's the biggest challenge your organization faces in helping refugees resettle? The biggest challenge is always the challenge that um, has existed in the past is that, um, you know, very often we don't get a lot of notice. Um, and so, you know, so we, we, we're prepared and we're ready. And then, uh, you know, and then we, we wait. Um, it's sort of almost like when you go traveling, you know, there's a lot of hurry up, hurry up, and then you end up waiting. Um, the same thing happens in, the, in this particular program where um, we need to be prepared if somebody arrives in, you know, two days, three days, four days, but we never really know exactly when they come. Um, and then um, often there are delays. Um, so the, the the biggest hurdle really right now is the is the government, um, and that is that the program itself has really been uh, dismantled over the years. And so just for the government to um, to you know all of the screening, all of the the work that's done to make sure that the folks that are vetted properly, um, uh, it takes a while. And so uh, we are anxiously awaiting folks to, to arrive here. Um, so just at Jewish Family Service in the last year. 42 folks have been uh, resettled. Um, and in past years, that number could be as high as 300, 400, 500. And so, um, you know, staffing up to that number is um, obviously where it's in progress. I've been speaking with Michael Hopkins, CEO of Jewish Family Services. Michael, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Female recruits went through Marine Boot Camp in San Diego for the first time this spring. As they are set to graduate, these new Marines and their instructors say the time has come for them to keep training on the West Coast. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh has the story. Though isolated, the first group of female recruits to train in San Diego understood people were watching. Some were cheering them on, while others were more negative, like Fox News host Tucker Carlson, who called efforts to accommodate female troops a mockery of the U.S. military. Senior drill instructor Amber Starosik. They're not oblivious to what happens on social media. They know what's being said. I think it became more of a challenge to them to push them to be harder than it did set them back. The cameras often followed the women as they ran, swam, climbed obstacles, and crawled through the California dirt. The low point came midway through the 13 weeks, says drill instructor Stephanie Fall. When it came to initial drill, they were very, very nervous, and, and they messed up a lot, and we, we actually tied for last. Drill, synchronized marching. The women came in behind the five male platoons. The males are loud as they move their weapons in unison from shoulder to shoulder. Paul says women are meticulous, better attention to detail, but they weren't confident. Then came round two, final drill, says recruit Marianne Parra. I think we all woke up and said, why do we put ourselves down? Everyone else is 
breaking us down. We're supposed to be the ones building ourselves back up. They won, beating the five other platoons. And you could tell the moment we hit that parade deck, there was just passion. All of us remembered why we wanted to be a Marine. At 21, Para is older than the average recruit. She dropped out of college in her junior year when she ran out of money. She was homeless for a time. Her parents didn't want their honor student daughter to join the Marines. And we made our statement. It felt good. Oh, there were a lot of tears when they announced that Platoon 3241 Wadro. There were a lot of tears. We were so happy. There were more tears to come. Unlike the Marines' traditional training site for women in flat, swampy Paris Island, South Carolina, West Coast Boot Camp culminates with scaling the Reaper, a summit that looms over training at Camp Pendleton. And you see the Reaper, even at the Chow Hall. And us girls, even I've overheard uh, male recruits, you see it and you just kind of tremble. But they reached the top, where they held the traditional ceremony. Each new Marine received an Eagle Globe and Anchor pin the symbol of the Marine Corps. Para, muddy and sleep-deprived, held it in her palm. It meant so more, so much more than I thought it was going to mean. Graduates of West Coast Boot Camp are dubbed Hollywood Marines. And these women are the first female Hollywood Marines in the 100-year history of San Diego Boot Camp. And it's true, looking down at this, I, I didn't think I was strong enough to be here. Every single day I was scared to be here. This shows to everyone that I actually can just myself that I'm bigger than I am. The Marines are the last service to fully integrate women into boot camp. They are under a congressional mandate to open boot camp in San Diego to women, but the deadline is 2028. For now, another cycle of women isn't scheduled for San Diego. Senior drill instructor Starosik doesn't want it to end. We're on a high right now, and I think the perfect thing for this high would be to continue pushing forward. They can do everything that is done out here. They prove that pretty thoroughly that, yes, they can, and actually they can do it really well. Though unless something changes, these 53 women are the first, and at least for a while, the last female Hollywood Marines. Joining me is KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. Steve, welcome. Hi, Maureen. Has there been any reason given why another group of women isn't scheduled to go through boot camp in San Diego? Well, I have a little bit more of an insight because I was able to talk to the uh, the colonel in charge of MCRD San Diego, Colonel Matthew Palma. He says he's not heard about another group of female recruits being scheduled. And since these Marines officially graduate tomorrow morning over at MCRD, the assumption is there won't be another class in the near future. Now, they don't know for sure, but... Palma emphasized that this was a test, though. It's a proof of concept, as he calls it. They are not required by law to have these women training regularly at MCRD San Diego until 2028. And they don't have to integrate boot camp at Paris Island until 2025. Now, obviously, the women Marines you spoke with were very happy with the success of their training. But is that how the Marine Corps brass feels about their performance? Well, I mean, there was a great deal of publicity surrounding this, so I assume they didn't want the women to fail. All eyes were on this, and not only just on these women, but on the Marine Corps as a whole. 
They have to show that the Marine Corps can handle the task that, you know, given to them by Congress. The Commandant of the Marine Corps has said publicly that they are going to comply with the law. So uh, the Marines uh, like the idea that somehow everyone is, is kept to the same standards, both men and women. And these women did keep to the same standard and they did excel. The Marines still do struggle with the basics. They have to redesign packs and body armor to, to you know, better fit women. These women get a lot more lower body injuries, and there's a feeling that if they redesign the packs in different ways, that could make it a little easier for women to hike long distances without injuries. But they haven't made a decision on when we're going to see more women in MCRD San Diego. And when I talk to Colonel Palma, he says, you know, it's his hope. That it's that they beat that 2028 deadline, but they really don't know. Now, you told us the story about the female platoon first failing and then succeeding, actually winning the drill. Are Marine recruits always separated into male and female platoons? Yeah, they are. That's that's kind of the whole gist of this. This is why Congress is is pushing them to integrate the uh, male and female recruit training. You know, and I'm going to follow up on, the, on this story with, with one more feature after they graduate about the difference between the Marines and the other services. Actually, they sent some representatives from MCRD San Diego to the other services boot camps to see how it was done. You know, the other services combine males and females at the platoon level. They're all in the same platoon operating the same way, which is the way that things are when they're, you know, out in the field after they graduate. It's really only the Marines that, that like separating them in this, in this initial step. So at San Diego, they, they integrate much of the training, but when they were in the field, they trained alongside men. They, they worked in small groups where at times they were leading the male recruits and switching off, which is a hallmark of Marine training training is working in these small groups. So the question is, is whether keeping them separate even satisfies the law put into place to integrate boot camp by 2028. But I'm, I'm going to get into that in another piece. Now, you mentioned the criticism directed toward female military personnel by Tucker Carlson and those comments on social media. I know that you keep up with what's being said online. So is there a lot of negativity directed towards these women? You know, first I want to emphasize that I had many female Marines and female, former female Marine vets who uh, contacted me online. They were very excited, very proud about what was happening here. They were retweeting these stories, which were very popular. But yeah, you know, Tucker Carlson's comments seemed to provoke, uh, res- uh, well, it did provoke a response from the Commandant of the Marine Corps supporting these women. And and those comments of the Commandant of the Marine Corps were read to those recruits while they were going through training. But yes, you saw online, you saw these sort of crusty veterans claiming that, you know, either women didn't belong there or somehow that they weren't following the same standards as, as the male recruits. They were some, somehow like, you know, lessening the standards. And the one positive of all this publicity is, Everything these female recruits was incredibly well documented. We were there several times documenting it. There are other local news outlets and national news outlets. There, I think I counted maybe two separate documentary crews that were looking at it. So when when they went through this whole process and, and they showed the successes that they did, it really did emphasize, you know, that these women did what the what the Marines said they were doing, which is keeping to the very same standards. What struck you the most in speaking to the female recruits about their boot camp experience? 
Well, these are most of these are 19 year olds who are often not the most articulate people in the world. But I will say these women really, even though they were in some ways picked at random or that they didn't really have much of an idea that they were going to be the part of this first class until really only just a short time before they, they came to San Diego. But even so, many of them had a real sense of the moment here. They, they also had a sense of purpose. They, they knew why they wanted to be Marines. You know, I, I kept asking questions like, you know, the Marines have less than less than 10% of Marines are, are female. These seem to be women who wanted this, specifically this challenge. They call themselves the fewer and the prouder, which is a play on the Marine slogan, the few, the proud, the Marines. And they were really proud of the fact not only that they were able to do this, but that they are part of such a, a small and elite group. I've been speaking with KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. Steve, thank you very much. Thanks, Maureen. A graduation ceremony for the new Marines takes place tomorrow morning at MCRD. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Heinzman with Maureen Cavanaugh. The pandemic's impact on education had a profound effect not just on students and their parents, but on educators as well. As learning moved away from the classroom, it was teachers who had to pivot and develop new and innovative ways to reach their students to ensure that their education did not suffer because of COVID. Yesterday, three educators within the San Diego Unified School District were honored for their excellence in teaching throughout the year of unprecedented change. One of those educators, fifth grade teacher Thomas Courtney of Choyus Mead Elementary, joins us now. Thomas, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. And congratulations to you. (laughs) Thanks, I appreciate it. Yes, so how does it feel to be one of three educators recognized for excellence in teaching during such a difficult time for your profession? That's the hardest question that I think uh, I have to answer, but mostly what I sum it up as saying is when you hear the speeches from the other people that were selected, it makes me absolutely honored to be there. What I heard um, last night from all of them was a commitment to change after the pandemic and a commitment to the students throughout it. So I was completely honored and floored to be there with them. You know, I'm wondering how your approach to teaching was changed by the pandemic. I mean, how did you initially adjust to remote learning? I think it's fair to say not too well. I think it was difficult for myself. I'm kind of that extrovert in the classroom that wears costumes and dances and sings to like 80s music to announce the homework. So that doesn't always transfer over to the virtual environment. But um, what we, I think what we did 
discover was that every teacher has their own innovative way of bringing things to the classroom. And so once I think I figured that out, that, you know, this is just another hurdle to cross to connect with students, that's when I think things started really taking off. And interestingly, after the pandemic is over, I think some of those lessons that I've learned, and I think many teachers, if not all of them feel the same way, we're going to have a, a bucket full of of tricks that we can use uh, afterwards, even in a physical environment. And as an educator, I, I'm, I know this is true for you, one of the most important components of your job is really maintaining a, a connection to your students. How did you manage to do that during the pandemic? For me, it began with actually driving around. It was really difficult for me to, to have a, a relationship with families um, virtually or over the phone. So I got in my truck. Sometimes my dog came. Sometimes I brought my skateboard. Sometimes a student teacher in a mask drove around with me. And we just knocked on doors when families were okay with that. We announced events where the students could drive through for various things. And every, every opportunity was just that. It was a chance for us to connect. So, for example, we had a celebration that was called Our Birthday, um, where everybody um, was able to come through and get a piece of cake, um, no matter what day their birthday was, so we could all celebrate. We reversed Halloween because the students were a little upset about about not being able to trick or treat, understandably. So we brought the candy to them. And so we've been doing quite a few events like that. And I really do believe that every one of those outreach events that we've had really has carried us through. Now, you teach fifth grade students. Uh, I'm curious as to what challenges that particular age group might present to teaching in a year of distance learning. Well, I better be really careful here because not only do I teach fifth grade students, I also have a fifth grade daughter who is a student at my school um, in Miss Borja's incredible classroom. And so I think what I'm learning is that number one, fifth graders, probably like other students, are very resilient. I think also one of the things that I've noticed is that fifth graders um, are often at that age where they can be left alone for a little bit, moms and dads and parents and grandparents have had to work throughout this whole pandemic. And oftentimes those kids have had an opportunity to do what we're doing on the computer or something else. And I have been extraordinarily proud of the students making good choices without somebody forcing them to. In our classroom, we talk a lot about the word integrity. And I think that that has really given me hope for what I can bring back to the classroom afterwards, just realizing that that integrity isn't something I have to teach to kids. It's embedded to them. I just have to get it out of them in creative ways. So that's been really wonderful to see. And the theme for this year's honors was teachers leading in crisis, fostering resiliency, and building a better San Diego. Do you feel that teaching during a crisis affected the education your students received? That is a consistent thing that I'm hearing about in all the teacher leadership groups I'm a part of, not just in San Diego, but also in the state of California and nationally, internationally with our Global Scholars Program, I'm hearing the same thing. And I think what it really boils down to is understanding what it is that we're calling achievement and then making sure that we're teaching into what we all collectively see as achievement. So, for example, if during the pandemic we're noticing that reading and math scores are slipping, that's something that we're going to need to focus on because reading and math is a base for everything else. But what else are we noticing that schools have missed? You know, schools should be places that kids miss on a daily basis. So what other things maybe have we missed that haven't been a part of our school routine that are coming back in a big way? And I'm talking about humanities. I'm talking about sciences. I'm talking about theater. I'm talking about 
uh, VAPA. I'm talking about all those things that gets, give kids a moment to shine that then inspires them to do the nitty gritty work as well. So I'm really geared up and excited for the changes that especially San Diego Unified is going to make post pandemic. That's what I'm hearing from everybody. and It's pretty awesome. That in mind, there's that old saying that in every crisis, there's an opportunity. Was there any way you were able to take advantage of the changes in learning over the past year um, and make them positive for your students? Yeah. And and, it, and you know what the great part about that is it's not just me. In fact, I like I said, I, I have to really give credit to our entire staff here at Choice Mead, from our principal, Ms. Hunter Clark, to all the amazing teachers I work with. I'm hearing people doing amazing things. Give you an example. Ms. Casarda is a teacher I work with. And this sixth hour that we're teaching that's provided by San Diego Unified has given her an opportunity that she wouldn't have in class for students to bring instruments. And she's starting a school band. That is incredible. Uh, that that is just a, a really incredible silver lining from all of this. I'm excited about running a version of our um, tournaments for soccer and basketball, maybe perhaps involving Pictionary um, online for students. And then we're also talking about doing all of these things between classrooms that ordinarily we wouldn't do. So now you've got competitions between classrooms, you've got coordinated um, buddy partnerships between classrooms, you've got opportunities for parents to be involved because we have needed them and they've needed us. So there really are a lot of neat takeaways that are going to happen from this. And um, I think it's going to be a matter of listening to those teacher voices and what each teacher has learned and then incorporating them back in the school site. I've been teaching for 22 years. And so, you know, I'm an old dog that knows some tricks, but the young ones know tricks too. And I think we're all just going to learn from each other. I think that has been an amazing focus that we're taking away. I've been speaking with one of San Diego Unified's Educators of the Year, Thomas Courtney, a fifth grade teacher at Choice Mead Elementary. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. In addition to Courtney, Sharon Apple from Hoover High School and Guadalupe Celadon from CPMA Middle School were also honored as the district's Teachers of the Year. Many kids have struggled with distance learning during the pandemic, but kids with disabilities have had special challenges. KQED in Northern California works with teachers to help high school students report stories about their own lives. Student journalist Zachary Ye is 16 and goes to Washington High School in San Francisco. He says it's tough for kids with learning disabilities to get the help they need at school and that the pandemic has made things even harder for them. When I was about four and a half years old, I was diagnosed with a learning disability known as autism. It was very rough growing up with it, considering the fact that I wasn't able to have an actual conversation until I was about seven years old. School was very difficult for me when I was younger. I had been working at a different pace than other students. Teachers would always discuss with my parents about ways to improve my learning. I have an IEP, which stands for Individual Education Plan. This allows special accommodations for school, but I still face some discrimination from school staff. I asked my mom, Janet Ye, about how that played out when I was younger. This really sticks out in my head because it was right when you were going into kindergarten, and I stopped to talk to 
um, your brother's former kindergarten teacher, and I asked her if she was ready to have you in her class the next year. And her response was, I don't think Zachary is going to be a good fit for my classroom. Wow. How did that make you feel? Well, I was pretty surprised and shocked, but we lucked out and we found a different kindergarten teacher who was willing to take you on and it was a great fit. My mother is a huge advocate for me. She made sure I got every therapy, camp, program, and accommodations. She created a parent support group at my elementary school. She wanted to help the parents that were struggling and the ones that didn't know how to advocate for their children. There was obvious discrimination against students with disabilities, often from the teachers who were supposed to be supporting me. Teachers regularly underestimated my ability to do schoolwork because I didn't have functional speech at that time. By the time I got into middle school, my disability was almost invisible. I told a few people that I was autistic, but they didn't believe me. This is probably because they see others with autism whose behavior was different than mine. But because I got support from my parents when I was little, I didn't struggle at school anymore. Many people with autism, however, have social problems, sensory processing issues, and even difficulty understanding instructions. At my current school, my case manager, Ms. Klaus, helps me to advocate for myself. She also makes sure that I am on the right track with my schoolwork. Another way I'm able to keep up with school is communicating with my teachers to make accommodations when necessary. I recently spoke to Ms. Klaus about discrimination in schools. Students with IEPs face uh, discrimination from a variety of sources and a variety of levels, um, ranging from their peers and other adults to also ranging from small comments or name calling all the way up to people calling into question whether or not them receiving accommodations and services is appropriate. What do you mean by that? With that, it's people who talk about how, well, it's not fair if someone gets extra time to do something because that's not fair to everybody else. Or it's not fair that those kids get a smaller class. Why does that matter? That's problematic because students with IEPs need those things to be able to succeed. And when you talk about fairness, it shouldn't be everyone getting exactly the same thing. It should be everyone getting what they need. What other factors contribute to discrimination? Don't even get me started on the low levels of funding for special education, because that is discrimination in its own way. I've heard classmates say, this person has autism, or use the R word as a slur. People assume that students who have disabilities are just straight up stupid, they can't accomplish goals in life, and their feelings won't be hurt when insulted. Bullies often manipulate people with disabilities by playing mind games they don't understand. Right now, during distance learning, many students with individual education plans are struggling to have all their accommodations met. Because of the pandemic, thousands of students who would normally have a one-on-one -on -one aid are not receiving services. This means they cannot meet their academic, behavior, social, and emotional goals. These students will be further behind when we go back. 
The fight for disability rights is still an ongoing battle. It helps that there are people like my mom, my case manager, and even my friends who are passionate to help people with disabilities. That was student journalist Zachary Yeh. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.